Hey, beautiful. My new book, Beautiful Writers, a journey of big dreams and messy manuscripts with tricks of the trade from best-selling authors is finally out in bookstores. I hope you'll pick up a copy for yourself or a creative in your life. If at any time you find yourself feeling out of your league or intimidated by the publishing industry, I hope my coming of career dreams, adventures, and misadventures will support you to find and believe in your own path. Nothing makes me happier on the page or on the airwaves here than having the chance to remind you that you're magic and you have every reason to believe in your dreams. Now, on to the show. Oh, I had so many weird things happen when I was doing that book. When I was really in the throes of that investigation, people who were with me traveling around would tell you about the strange energy fields or energy disturbances, things like lights doing strange stuff or windows suddenly opening all by itself. (laughs) Or I was sitting with Diane Sawyer in her living room in Martha's Vineyard talking about this before. She and I did a primetime special on it in 2001. And just as I was beginning to tell her, this wind came blowing through the window and it it just smashed this huge glass vase of flowers and just flung it onto the floor. She and Mike Nichols were sitting there and she was barefoot and glass was everywhere like a bomb went off. And these are the kinds of really strange things that would happen. And it's because we don't understand always what we're dealing with. And that's why they used to say things like, if you dine with the devil, use a long spoon, so to speak. Be careful. And listen, before I forget, I got to tell you an interesting thing because this kind of keys right into this whole supernatural or whatever, or what I call the other dimension. So several weeks ago, Stacy and I had dinner with Dan Brown. And I was saying, you know, imagine if you think back in the days of Charles Dickens, I said, why doesn't somebody do some kind of podcast or show where you get people like that talking to other people like that? Because let me ask you something. If you could hear Charles Dickens being interviewed by CNN, or you could hear Charles Dickens talking to Bram Stoker with somebody else, I mean, what would you do? And Dan said, oh my God, I know what I'd want to hear. I'd want to hear what those two guys have to say. And then lo and behold, that's what you're doing, Linda. What you've done You've created, you're creating the salon that we don't have anymore. We're really interesting people like the movable feast kind of people, Ezra Pound and Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. They're all comparing notes. <laughs> that was thriller writer Patricia Cornwell, just about making me cry with her sweet mystical take on what we're doing here. I anticipated some riveting shop talk between these two authors, Patricia and Tosca Lee, a New York Times bestselling thriller author herself, who's become a dear friend since she appeared on this show a few years ago. Tosca's many novels, like A Single Light, The Legend of Sheba, Iscariot, Demon, and the Book of Mortals series, include all sorts of magic, so I sensed she'd be the perfect match for the ultra prolific Patricia Cornwell. What I was not expecting was the level of supernatural storylines behind their stories. Holy smokes, you guys, I still kind of can't believe what you're about to hear. I have long been in awe of Patricia, imagining her as a kind of female James Bond, 
She flies choppers. She drives race cars. She scuba dives. She's something of a weapons expert. She goes on archaeological excavations. She hangs out at NASA and writes about outer space. She's worked in a morgue. And she once posted snipers to the roof of a building near to where she was giving a signing. Whatever it takes to get the job done for telling and selling the most addictive stories. Patricia started her career as a journalist, soon leading to the police beat. And it was working in that morgue where she wrote Postmortem, the first of 29 New York Times bestsellers and the first bona fide forensic thriller, paving the way for the explosion of entertainment we now see with all things forensic across film and television and literature. Patricia pens nonfiction and fiction, in total, selling over 100 million copies. She's authored a definitive account of Jack the Ripper's identity, a biography of Ruth Graham, a children's book, and even cookbooks. Autopsy is her latest Scarpetta novel, the 25th of the series. It's about to be published in a few weeks. Seeing as how I plan to air this show on Halloween, I asked Tosca which of her novels we should pair with Autopsy, and we decided that The Progeny and its sequel, Firstborn, would be ideal. They're about the descendants of the real-life historical blood countess Elizabeth Bathroy of Hungary, who's known as the most prolific female serial killer in history, rumored to have murdered over 600 women with four collaborators between 1590 and 1610. But Tosca didn't necessarily trust that the proceedings against Bathory weren't politically motivated due to her extensive wealth and land ownership, and she decided to look into the matter herself. Patricia went back in time for Jack the Ripper. Tosca for Elizabeth Bathory. I have goosebumps just thinking about the courage and imagination of these two ladies in pursuit of their tales. We have so much to cover, including writing through your terror, how to be a safe narrator, protecting yourself and your reader, immersing yourself in the locations and activities that you're writing about, even when you're scared. There's writing book after book when no one is buying and why we will all write our best stories if we think no one is watching. I'm going to start this conversation after I've just warned Tosca and Patricia And I might sound a little spacey as I had just turned in my book, Beautiful Writers, to my editor. I had spent days reformatting the manuscript, writing new pieces, cutting chunks, and having been there many times, Patricia had some way cool thoughts on that, which I think you might enjoy if you have ever wrestled with attempting to live in more than one world at the same time. Welcome. I think we all know what that is like when you're at the end of that first real draft. And my rule is always, I do not allow myself to operate dangerous machinery. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like a helicopter or a fast car or any car, oh, yeah. um, you're not yourself. You know, I always say you're kind of Alice going through the looking glass when you write a book or you do any art because you're channeling something else and you're transporting and going somewhere else. And when you come back, it's kind of like the astronauts. They're not used to gravity for a while. You know? <laughs> That's a great analogy. Really good. That really makes me feel better because I do feel sometimes just like an airhead. 
And I know my husband looks at me and he has no understanding. His feet are so firmly planted on the ground. He has no understanding of where his wife goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Tosca, a lot of your work has like a fantasy bent to it where Patricia, your work is more kind of in the news storylines. However, I am still mad at Tosca because she wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Line Between. And I read it right before the pandemic. Uh And it's about an extinct disease that's reemerged from the melting Alaska permafrost and Mm. it causes madness in its victims. And I was so paranoid when I read that book. I said to my husband, I said, hey, if the supply chains ever falter, how do we get dog food? Would we go hunting? And then the pandemic hit like a month later. Mm. And the supply chain, I mean, we got dog food. We couldn't get toilet paper, but we got dog food. (laughs) But I was so mad. I was like, Tosca, you are not supposed to write about this stuff and scare me and have it happen. It sounds to me like she might have predicted it. It sounds very similar, these two. And it's certainly the subsequent madness and craziness of people. Right? Yeah. My next book will be about an author who wins the lottery. So that's kind of the plan. (laughs) Are you really serious? Uh, No, but I'm thinking about it because it was a pandemic duology and the second one came out just a few months before COVID, before the first cases hit here. So it's been kind of a weird last couple years. But (laughs) if anybody could turn that plot line into something really unusual, it would be you. And the author wins the lottery and then their life is totally ruined and somehow that becomes misery (laughs) of you're tied to a bed. I don't know. I interviewed... Sue Monk Kid, and it was when the Book of Longings had just come out about the wife of Jesus. She wrote it before the pandemic, but when I interviewed her, she was on tour during the pandemic. But again, I was so shocked because we were sheltering in freaking place in the book when we were doing the very same thing. You know, Isaac Newton came up with the laws of physics during the pandemic when he was sheltered in place. And so much time on his hand when the apple hit the ground, he said, hmm, somebody. <laughs> you know, and he might have been too busy watching something streaming there and he would have missed it otherwise, been out at the pub. But I think a lot of great things, in fact, I was going to ask both of you how this affected your creativity during these past two years. What was it like for you writing in this vacuum, good or bad? Bad. It caught me with three teenage boys home for a little in the house torn up with a toilet literally in the middle of our basement. So bad. <laughs> it was not good. It so hard. You didn't get the isolation that you would have liked, in other words. Oh. So, yeah. Mine, on the other hand, was really different. I give writing retreats in Carmel and I wasn't able to travel to the hotel. And I thought, how can I use my fear? I had been working on a book, Beautiful Writers, for years. I wanted to make it a hybrid book of my writing stories with advice and inspiration from you guys, from the biggest authors in the world. And it was too big of a job. I have 2,000 pages of transcripts. And then suddenly not being able to travel. And my son is grown and out of the house. So it was quiet. And I finally was able to put in 50 hours a week for many, many months. I sold it and I got it finished. Also where it was a blessing, and I want to ask you guys about this. For me, 
I easily go into fear and I catastrophize. I'm super optimistic, but I'm a greenie and I've been feeling panic about global warming, writing about it for decades. It's been nice to be able to focus and take my fears (laughs) and put them into creativity where I think they can flourish. How about you guys? First thing I would just say real fast is fear is fuel. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. Fear and anger are fuel, but fear in particular. I mean, why do you think that I write the things that I do? Because it scares the hell out of me. Um, you can ask my partner, Stacy. I mean, she, I even have Grey's Anatomy on while we're eating. And I've been in the morgue, you know, I've seen thousands of cases. But what I fear is real. I'm not, yeah. you know, so when I'm writing about, I've seen these things, but it keeps me sitting in my chair doing this because if I don't have an emotional response to what I'm thinking about, then why would you? as the reader. But Tuska, how about you? What, what is, okay. do you have fear? Oh, I do a lot. But, you know, during the pandemic, having just researched all this, it was just kind of like a, huh. <laughs> it was just, you know, having heard all these people say it was just a matter of time was, huh, you know, but I write from a place of fear a lot. I don't know that it, it sounds like a bad thing, but I think it's actually a fairly good thing for me. I'm really curious, Patricia, were you productive during the pandemic? Because you have autopsy coming out. Did you write that during the pandemic? I did. Oh, because COVID's mm-hmm. in the storyline. That's I, I actually, like, I, what, I wouldn't know what that was like. Well, that was, it, it's been very weird because five years ago, after chaos, the 24th Scarpetta book came out right during the Trump getting elected and all that. And it was just a terrible time to be on book tour, if you can imagine. Oh, and, it, and there was many reasons. I literally said, I don't know what to do. If I do another one of these, I mean, I keep getting the technology more and more highly evolved. And I said, I'm going to have to have her solve a case on the moon the way I'm going. <laughs> and I just said, you know what? I'm, I just don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. So I quit. And I decided I was going to try to do TV or other stuff. And meanwhile, I got interested in exploring space, you know, that type of technology. So I did, and I had an opportunity to do two of these Captain Chase books, which I ended up doing them with Amazon because thinking with all their platforms and whatever, they had their own space program too, Blue Origin. And so I did that and Spin came out just this past January, the second one of those. And now I'm sitting around thinking, what am I going to do next? And we're just, and we're getting into the, you know, we're locked down, no book tour, everything's remote. And I spent many months just doing other things as I started thinking What's happening in this world? We've never seen this before. Nothing's ever going to go back to the way it really was. And look at these horrible other things that are happening, like the Capitol, January 6th. I mean, and just the things that are every day in the news. And I thought, what would Scarpetta do if she were around right now? Yeah. And and the last things I'll say, because I don't want to, I'm very long-winded, is I literally conjured it up in my head. Like I imagined her sitting in her garden. And I said, we haven't seen each other in a while. Uh, would you like to work a case? <laughs> well, maybe. Depends on what it is. <laughs> and I started that book last fall. And I literally was in my chair every single day until it was done. And that was a lot easier to do because I couldn't really go anywhere. Right. And I had to draw upon research that I've done over the years. And it's amazing what you can remember and use that you think you just have filed away and that you don't need to go do it again sometimes if you're forced to stay in. Mm-hmm. I love how you 
throw yourself out into the world normally. So it must have been so strange for you. And for listeners who don't know your history, Patricia, you really throw yourself into life. I mean, you're, you fly choppers. You're a scuba diver. You've learned how to do things so that you can become a better writer. Is that right? Well, I'm not an admiral in the Navy or a ballerina, though. You know, <laughs> I mean, I see, I'm not these things for real. So I have to go out and pretend so I know what it feels like, you know, or seriously, you know what I really am is I'm a journalist. Yeah. And I was taught to go out and report on and research whatever it is you're writing a story about. And that's really what I still do. And so when I wanted to have Lucy be a helicopter pilot, I thought, well, I better take lessons. It also gives me an excuse to do something I want to do anyway, probably. Yeah, yeah. We'll tell you this. All of that stuff scares me to death. I mean, it <laughs> is. I'm, I'm anxious. And I think that everything in life is about how you deal with fear. <laughs> I really do. And whether it's turning it into stories or trying something that you wouldn't have thought of, it could be anything. Yeah. But I don't know about you, but how do you guys get your inspiration for what you write about? What do you do? Tosca. Sometimes it's a suggestion and sometimes it's just an idea. I, I wrote about the descendants of Elizabeth Fathroy because I thought she was interesting, but I'd done some historical stuff already and I was kind of pooped. And so I wanted to do something faster paced and fun. The pandemic thing, the pandemic books I did, I'd just seen a really interesting article in the news about a reindeer carcass that thawed in the melting Siberian permafrost and it happened to be infected with anthrax and it made a nearby village sick. And so that kind of started that idea, which is not, you know, disease coming out of the permafrost is not an original idea by any means. And it's been done a lot, but it just, the thought of taking a, a spin around that was really kind of an intoxicating idea. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. What's wrong with me? <laughs> that is amazing. I think you're on to cosmic questions because one of the big things they debate these days is whether time really ever began or will end. You know, the Big Bang sort of implies that something started. And now the thought is that there is no beginning or end. And as Einstein said, without time, everything would happen at once. So when you have the permafrost and then the plague comes back and we seem to go through, whether it's the Spanish flu, we go full yeah. circle. And I don't think we really know what reality really is. And I think that's why storytellers, quite frankly, People like all of us are so important because we are what helps sort of define what life is in the world and who we are and what we should become. Otherwise, you got no GPS mm -hmm. stories. And oh, we're like, all trying to make sense of our experience on, you know, in this life. And I think that we're trying to make sense of it by telling stories. Oh, I totally agree. My first book came to me in a dream and it was so interesting because... I had been asked the same question throughout my life. And the question may sound obnoxious, so I'm hesitant to even share it. I was a very happy child growing up. I was serious and I was into the occult and believing that there was always truths that nobody was telling us. So I, I was serious on the one hand, but I was, as I am now, enthusiastic, really grateful, just super in love with my life. So all the time, people would say to me, what do you do? Why are you so happy? Why are you so charmed? What do you do? And it would get so obnoxious. I would be at a high school kegger and the football star would be drunk off of his gourd and he'd be crying to me going, Linda, what do you do? Tell me, what do you do? And I'm like, Jesus, I don't know. So the question really did haunt me when I had my child because 
I got asked that question yet again. And I thought, how do I tell my child how to be happy? I don't know. What is it? And so I was mulling this question over and over and over. And I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw that I was supposed to interview all the people that were my clients. I was a dog walker in Beverly Hills for Kirk Douglas and Kiefer Sutherland. And so I saw that I was supposed to interview my most quote unquote charmed clients about how they created magic in their lives. But to tell the real story, the incest and the alcoholism and all of it, but to come from a spiritual and environmental bent. So that's what I did. And nowadays, it's so funny, I'm still doing it. I'm doing it on this show and the book, the same. Just happens, right? You listen. You just got to listen to what life is showing you. I tell people, I said, there's only two words that will define what you're asked of while you're here. Just two words. Be willing. Just be willing. Whatever it is that you're supposed to be doing. And if you are, it picks you. I don't know if you both felt this way, but I didn't just decide as a little kid that I was going to start writing anything. I mean, that's just what I did naturally is. And it wasn't even what I wanted to do. And I had weird, I'll tell you my little quick weird story. Then Tusca, maybe you've got a a supernatural weird story. But I remember being about 12 and my mom was walking me through this shopping mall in Western North Carolina. And there was some kind of bookstore that was there. And as I was walking past, I looked and I had this vision that the window was filled with books that had my name on it. (gasps) And I thought, that's really weird. That has... I wasn't even interested in doing that. I wanted to be a tennis player. And I didn't even tell my mother. I didn't say anything about it, but I never, never forgot. And I've had a number. And But what that gets back to is, once again, are you seeing something that's going to happen in the future? Or are we living in a reality where you're seeing is something that already has happened? And because there isn't this beginning and end, the older I get, the more fascinated I am. But I do think that we are picked for reasons. And if we're willing to do those things, it's the way it ought to be. Doesn't mean it's always easy or happy, but you have a certain, for me at least, a certain inner peace that I'm actually doing the best I can at what I think I'm supposed to do, even if it's not always what I wish it were. hundred percent. I want to delve into that vision a little bit. So you're a little kid, you're with your mom, you see the books. Was it more of a feeling when you saw the books or did you physically see just tons of different titles with your, almost like when you go to your homepage, patriciacornwell.com, there's a massive amount of covers there. The book covers are just boom, 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 boom. And they're just gorgeous. Was it like that? Was it vivid and bright? You could see what? It wasn't like colorful, but it was a window. Like they would put all the books in the window for something that's come right. out that we're right. all seeing. And it was all these books in the window that, and I don't even remember what, I mean, I must have said Patsy Daniels because that's what everybody called me back then. But my name was on them. And I just kept walking thinking, that's really strange. I've had, you know, I've had a, for example, one of my, I have one poem left that I wrote when I was a kid, when I was nine years old. And it was about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Uh, It's very detailed about him letting slaves free and him being shot in the head. There was a man, his name was Abe. He lived in a cabin when he was a babe and blah, blah, blah. Well, I didn't really know at that time. And I'd find out later that Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, is an ancestor of mine. And I mean, (gasps) trace right back through my grandmother, who I knew, who was born in 1890, the Beechers. I'm from those folks. And it's almost like this is in my DNA. And here's another weird thing about Harriet Beecher Stowe. 
Well, first of all, I've been in her house. I've looked at some of the existing pages of Uncle Tom's Cabin, what few there are, because if anybody asked her for an autograph, she'd autograph a page of the manuscript and send it to him. Can you imagine that? No. Well, she became friends with this politician in the UK named Richard Cobden. She met him at the White House when she met Lincoln during when the Civil War had broken out. She stayed in Richard Cobden's house in England. Richard Cobden's daughter, Ellen, married Walter Sickert, who is the person I believe was Jack the Ripper. Oh, oh my God. God. So my ancestor, I'm Jack the Ripper's father-in-law. No freaking way. My ancestor, Harriet Beecher Stowe, was friends with Jack the Ripper's father-in-law and for sure would have met Richard Cobden's daughter, Ellen, because she would have been a girl living at home at that time. And that's who married Stickert in, in the 1804, whenever it was. Oh, I love my... Tell me if life isn't weird, right? Okay, okay Tosca, Tosca, now you have to tell her about Bathory. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I started writing about the descendants of Elizabeth Bathory. My mom's a lifelong genealogist. And she wait, 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 wait. Sister, Ooh. you have to slow down and tell us who Bathory is for people who don't oh, know. Oh, oh, Elizabeth Bathory was this Hungarian countess who lived in the 1500s and she was the blood countess. I know who that was. You know who it was. She was rumored to bathe in the blood of virgins to stay young and beautiful and rumored to have killed some 600 young women. And, and at the end, she was uh, tried and she was walled up in one of her castles and she lived four years walled up in her castle and she died that way. And of course, you know, I kind of smell like a big conspiracy theory when I research stuff like that. But <laughs> so I told my mom that I was now writing this story of the descendants of Elizabeth Bathroy. And uh, I said, hey, we, I want to go to Hungary, Croatia and research all this. You want to go? And my mom was, you know, she was packing her bag. Well, we're on the phone, I think. But she said, you know, because she's been doing this genealogy forever and she does it also professionally on the side. She said, you know, we're distantly related to her. Um, and I was like, what? <laughs> and I did not know that when I thought that it would be cool to write about her descendants. So. That's weird. I believe everything is about physics. And in even things that seem to be magical, it's all science. And all these strange things we're talking about, there's science to it somewhere. Yep. And so I believe that energy fields and all sorts of things are drawn together. And that's why, Linda, when you were talking about how you tend to be so positive and all these things, that's your energy field. And me, I tend to... Well, I don't think most people would accuse me of having a zippity doodah energy field. <laughs> no, do you have a collection of weapons in your house? But as, a but as a result, I mean, whoever I am, my karma, my energy field, I've always drawn weird stuff to me, like strange yeah. things. If, you know, if someone's going to get dragged off a plane because they think you have a gun on your belt, it's going to be me. And of course, it's your spot. <laughs> um, don't ask me why. But it, it is very interesting. I love it. This book that Tosca was talking about, about Bathory, is called The Progeny. And the follow-up is called Firstborn. And they're incredible books. In fact, what I love that you did, Tosca, and let's talk, I would like to talk about social media for a minute. You made a Pinterest board, Tosca, Mm -hmm. for those books so that you showed your research. You showed being in Eastern Europe and the castle where she was locked up and where she died and the different places and the kinds of clothing and portraits of her. And we could see those different places in real life and the part of the ocean where you write about, we could see all that. 
I remember Elizabeth Gilbert did the same thing. She made a really extensive Pinterest board for the signature of all things. So you could go back in time. Can you talk about that, Tosca, building that sort of world for your readers to see in a new way? Part of it is I don't really start the story or start outlining until I've researched. And part of the research, as often as it can be for me, includes traveling to the place. And so when I go to the place and taking pictures, and that really informs the story for me. It was that way with those two books. It was that way with Iscariot and my novel about Judas Iscariot. And so that it really informs that. So I take pictures. And I really wish that I could share that with the readers because I can describe it. That's my job. It's my job to write about it. But I think it's really cool if they're able to see the actual places and objects and different things. I think it just kind of is a fun extra. I think that's great because what you're really doing is you're a storyteller, but you're a pilot. You're taking people places that they Mm -hmm. can't go. That's how I look at it. Whether it's a castle where something terrible happened or a morgue where something terrible happened or some beautiful place, that's what we're supposed to do is take people somewhere. Mm. I think anyway. Oh, that's so true. Transport them. Patricia, when I was writing this weekend and I was finishing my book edits for my publisher, I texted Tosca and I said, I need a story. (laughs) And it was in the part of the book, and I'm not going to spoil it, but it had to do with nature giving me a major sign. I had a supernatural, to use your word from earlier, Patricia, I had a real supernatural thing happen in my publishing journey. And so the chapter is called Nature Leaves Clues. Oh, and I remember I just read, Martha Beck had just sent me a story about this incredible scenario that happened with her in a plane and a rainbow. So I said, Tosca, I need a story. I was so blown away. Can you talk about what happened? So so much happened. I was researching Iscariot, which was my first person novel about Judas Iscariot, which is the infamous betrayer of Christ. Yep. And I was terrified the whole time. I'm talking about fear. I mean, I was terrified. I was worried about getting the researcher and I was worried just about people coming down on me for messing something up or, you know, people spend lifetimes researching this time in history and all this. So, you know, I'm not a theologian or historian or religious expert. I'm just someone who researches a lot. And I compensated for my fear by researching full time for a year and a half, maybe a little longer. And I built this kind of protective wall with all this research. And then I overwrote the manuscript by 130,000 words. That's on top of the regular gosh. It was really long. And so... What is that, like 900 pages? Over 900 pages. I'm not good at math, but it was really long. So what happened is I'd really lost sight of the most important part in the story, which was the human and divine mystery at the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. And so when I was going through all of this, I was thinking back to my time in Israel where I had grown up in the church. So I was expecting some like, oh, you know, like moment. And I'm at this land. I mean, I, I went to the shores of Galilee and I went to the synagogue in Capernaum and did all this stuff. But as I was going up to Jerusalem, that's what they call going up to Jerusalem the last few days I was there. I just felt completely let down and I was going toward the Dome of the Rock and there were steeples and mosques and temples everywhere, like, you know, pagans reaching for God. And I just had not experienced one moment of mystery. And I, I was actually crying <laughs> as I went up there. And I stopped because there was a beggar woman on the steps going up toward the Dome of the Rock. And when I saw her, I 
reached into my pocket for what I had, which wasn't a lot, just a few shekels. But I reached down to give it to her. And the minute I did, she grabbed my hand in both of hers. And there was just this moment of connection and relationship. And I just felt like, sure it is. This is very words. There was that miracle. That was my yeah. miracle. And I had gone all the way there to hold her hand in that moment. And it totally changed the book because I paired it all back to this connection, this human connection. And then it won Christian Book of the Year the next year. So that was weird. <laughs> I think uh, Patricia, didn't you also win Christian Book of the Year for Billy's wife? It too, right? I might have won it for that, but I can promise you I've never won it since. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I would send Ruth Graham my latest Scarpetta novel back in, in the day when she was still around, and she would write me a note back and she would say, you know, it would sell like hotcakes if you would get rid of all the cuss words or something, which was. But it, I would put little boxes. Please check if you're still reading, because I knew she wasn't going to. Oh, wasn't going to be her cup of tea. But no, I, that was the only Christian book award I think I ever won was for her biography. <laughs> That's funny. Yes, yeah, check if you're still reading. That's smart. I like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd ever win any award like that either. I just love swear words. I just love them. <laughs> I wish that I didn't. I used to tell Ruth, I said, it's my characters talking that way, not me. And she'd go, mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> and they're the ones smoking those cigarettes when you've come over to my house too, right? Yeah, exactly. I love how you talked about, Patricia, when you were writing Jack the Ripper. I remember hearing you on an interview somewhere where you said writing about him was like poking a stick at an energy field and that sometimes it would poke back in weird ways and you would get this eerie sense that there was something alive there and it wasn't just words on paper. Oh, I had so many weird things happen when I was doing that book. When I was really in the throes of that investigation, people who were with me traveling around would tell you about the strange energy fields or energy disturbances, things like lights doing strange stuff or windows suddenly opening all by itself. (laughs) Or, Or I was sitting with Diane Sawyer in her living room and Martha's Vineyard talking about this before she and I did a primetime special on it in 2001. And just as I was beginning to tell her, this wind came blowing through the window and it, it just smashed this huge glass vase of flowers and just flung it onto the floor. And she and Mike Nichols were sitting there and she was barefoot and glass was everywhere like a bomb went off. And these are the kinds of really strange things that would happen. And it's because... We don't understand always what we're dealing with. And that's why they used to say things like, if you dine with the devil, use a long spoon, so to speak. <laughs> you don't know how close what you're getting close to. Be careful. And I was careful with that case. But that is whatever that energy field is. I can tell you right now, it is alive and well, and it's not gone. And every time I have to do anything still about that or deal with Walter Sickert, there's always strange things that happen. I think this is a great topic to bring up around Halloween because sometimes people think, oh, I don't want to read a scary book or I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to know about that stuff because it'll bring that energy into my life. And yet I do think there's a way to do it. When I read either of your books, especially with Patricia, I have to leave the light on if it's nighttime, but (laughs) they're scary, but they're not, you don't take it too far either of you. You keep it in the realm of suspense. You keep it entertaining. It's fun. Your characters are funny. 
they live the whole gamut of romance and sarcasm. And I feel like I get a lot of dopamine hits from trying to solve things right along with you. There's a lot of twists and turns. I don't know how things are going to go. So I know as a reader that I feel safe. But how do you guys as the writers feel safe? Is there any ritual that you do? Is there a place you won't cross in your mind? Sure. Tuska, you want to go first? No. I want to hear what you have to say. All right. Well, (laughs) that's a very good question because I first went to the morgue. The reason I went there was to do research, never thinking that it would take me so long that I'd end up working there for six years. But by the time I started postmortem, I'd been down there for four years, written three books that nobody wanted and thought I'd totally ruin my life because I couldn't even go back to journalism by that point. I'd been in the morgue longer than I'd been a reporter. And somebody had said, you know, you're not writing about what you see. And I thought that's because what I see is so awful. And then I thought, okay, we started having this horrible serial killings in Richmond, Virginia. That's what postmortem is inspired by. And I thought to myself, all right, if you're going to show it for real, how do you do this? How do you do it where you're not victimizing people all over again and celebrating what should be condemned? And in my case, what I'd learned, and I've made mistakes since then, and and I have to keep reminding myself of this, it is so important who's your narrator. It's so important. Scarpetta, we are safe when it is safe. point of view. And it's not her point of view. And I learned that by switching to third for several books. And people didn't like it. They got mad at you. They got very mad at me. And they not only didn't feel safe anymore because she wasn't always in the room, but I didn't either when I was writing it. And I didn't like it. Oh, yeah. And I quit doing it. With Ripper, I had to know what my voice was, which is kind of the Scarpetta type voice. So again, you are not sensationalizing these people who have been so violated beyond words. You're not doing it all over again, even though we have to show people the truth of what's been done. We do not honor victims if we pretend that nothing awful was done to them. It's just that we don't want to titillate people with this sort of thing. And Scarpetta never will, but she'll sure give you a a very graphic dose. Mm. Yeah. 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 I feel safe with her. I love her. She's just a badass. I can't wait to see her on the screen. I'm so glad that Jamie Lee Curtis is in love with her. I feel like it's going to be on the screen soon. She is. What an honor to get to work with her. I mean, she's so brilliant. She's brilliant. And she's also just a wonderful human being. Yeah. And that is, I mean, you've got to be surrounded by good people. That's for sure. I want to talk about log lines. I love creating creative log lines for, you know, part of my business, Patricia, is I help people sell their writing. So I love book proposals. You and I should have talked earlier. Yeah. (laughs) Tosca did an interview with me for, I have a program called Book Proposal Magic, where I walk people through every step of writing a book proposal so it's not hard. And she provided the most amazing proposal for novel. So people could learn from that, you know, because most of my stuff has always been nonfiction. But at any rate, the tagline, the logline, they're really hard to write, even though they're short. I remember when I was working on my first book and I was trying to come up with my elevator pitch and I just couldn't do it. And my husband at the time was like, you know, let's look at movies because he was an actor. So he's like, let's look at movies. So we looked at Groundhog Day. A weatherman finds himself inexplicably living the same day over and over again. Or Rocky, a small-time boxer, gets a supremely rare chance to fight a heavyweight champion in a bout in which he strives to go the distance 
for his self-respect. So mine, my logline for this new book, it was so hard, but I finally, my sister helped me with it. A heartwarming, how I made it tale from a working writer you've never heard of and inspiration and advice from the legends you love. Love it. Yeah. Okay, so the logline for The Line Between, a young woman gets ousted from a doomsday cult just in time for the apocalypse. (laughs) So Scarpetta, is this your logline for Scarpetta? Or for the new one, for 25. Scarpetta returns to Virginia in a post-pandemic world and must hunt a cunning serial killer terrorizing Scarpetta's own city while politicians cover up the truth. Is that it? Well, that would definitely be the blurb that the publisher wants out there everywhere. But if I were going to try to write something clever that you might see on the side of a bus going by in LA, I would want something like, from space to ground to six feet under. Oh. <laughs> if the book starts with this body down in the refrigerator, a woman whose throat's been cut and her hands are gone, dumped by railroad tracks. Yes. But you're going to find out soon enough that this serial killing case is connected to something that's going on in low Earth orbit in an orbiting commercial laboratory that's top secret. And she ends up having to remotely deal with the death scene that happens in outer space. And I researched all that so that it's exactly accurate for how it really work. Because in microgravity or in non-gravity, weightlessness, yes. can you imagine what a crime scene is going to be like when you have blood and things like that? Oh, drying up and flying around. Flying around. What <laughs> <laughs> to say is wherever crime and bad, wherever people go, Scarpetta will have to deal with it. So whether it's on this earth or up here or beyond or, you know, so that, that would be what I would put on the side of the bus. Oh, my God. I love it. You didn't just make that up, did you? No, actually, the, the director, the secretary general of Interpol says that to Scarpetta in French in that book. She said, I can't, don't ask me to do that, but there is this from space to ground six feet under because they're both on this doomsday commission, which I deal with every threat there might be to our planet. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I want to talk about character of place. You both write, so beautifully about place that it makes us feel that we're there. I would say it's an intensity of place. I think it's an important part of getting us into the story. I was looking right away in this new book, Patricia. I love this part where you say, this stretch of King Street is heavily wooded and residential and gracious homes on generous lots are decorated for the season. Lampposts and columns are wrapped in blue and white lights that flicker in the soupy overcast. Christmas trees glitter through windows, candles glowing cozily. Yummy! How long does that take you to write that paragraph? Descriptions are the funnest and the worst things that we must do. They are. They're so hard. Especially when you're not really sure what something's going to look like and you're in the damn car. Excuse me, I, I shouldn't say this to the Christian bestseller over here. No, no, please. I'm in car. somewhere. But I, it's like, damn it, they're in the car again. And I have to describe what they're seeing out their damn window. In the old days, just like you traveling all over, you know, when you're talking about Jerusalem and all these places. And you're always got a, your phone or, I mean, a camera or your notebook. Because that's the kind of stuff you have to describe. And if you don't transport people, to me, writing is a pane of glass and people should pass through it without being aware of your words. And if they're too aware of your words, they're getting in the way. 
So it's not so much about how you de- what you describe, it's how you do it, the cadence, the rhythm of the sentence, the mood, so that suddenly somebody sort of, their gravity's not holding on to them. They float it off into that place you want them to be. So I think it's really important that you do that. I love how you just talked about cadence because you're pacing. There's this scene where she's talking to, is it Gwen, where she's taking off her shoes and pants. She's getting ready to go somewhere. And she was like, that's another thing that's unusual, August says. If you Google her, there's nothing. It's like she doesn't exist, including on social media. I hang up my suit. Nope, not even on Twitter. No news stories either, nothing. What about photographs inside her condo? Maybe framed ones about a scrapbook, any pictures? Sitting down on the toilet lid, I pull on a pair of warm socks. Do we know what Glenn looked like? Throughout the whole thing, I'm watching you get dressed. And it's just the pacing is just perfect. It looks like a movie to me. It reads like a movie. It's funny you would say that. You know, when I quit five years ago and what I'm going to write any books at all anymore, I, I spent a whole year writing screenplays. And we know how successful that is because I went back to writing books. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. But, so what I've learned, so I mean, to me, a screenplay is a computer program. Yeah. And, you know, it's this amazing thing that makes things happen and you, that you don't care about words, you care about what it does. Yeah. And I think the two things I would tell anybody who wants to be a writer, particularly of novels or we should say books, is first of all, write poetry, write poetry, write poetry, because it teaches you to think in terms of images and it's the music of prose and that you learn rhythm, cadence, but words that sound like what they are. Uh, you know, on a monopia, we learned that in English school, at grad school or whatever. And then the other thing is read a good screenplay because it's so visual. And man, if you can make people walk through a room the way Jonathan Demi can in Silence of the Lambs, then you can do something, you know? I'm always trying to learn new ways to get better at this. Mm-hmm. Constant polishing. I'm so good at it. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the body farm. <laughs> It's a real place. Okay, first of all, there are now, I believe, about seven body farms in this country. I think about three of them are in Texas. Probably the rest are in Florida. Don't ask me why. Somehow know that. But the body farm, the very first one, and I can't think of the actual name, but it's a decay research facility, basically, where bodies donated to science were allowed to be used for forensic scientific research. And then the biggest thing that you want to know is if you put a body in certain conditions, how it's going to decompose. Like, you know, when you've had all this in the news about somebody's remains found down in Florida. Oh, yeah. Today. Or found out in the desert, out west or whatever. One of the ways you figure out time of death and various other things is by how that body decomposes, depending on the temperature, how it's clothed, the body size where it is, what predatory creatures are in the neighborhood that are going to come, you know, feed on it and do all this kind of stuff. And so the body farm is for that research. Cameras are there 24-7. Anthropologists manage it. And the original one in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, behind the UT's hospital there, University of Tennessee's hospital, big old fence around it. And if you ever go down and you see that big old fence, I paid for that fence. You did? I hovered over that fence that the the body farm. Long ago, I took up Bill Bass in the helicopter. He was the, I call him mayor of the body farm. He was the anthropologist who started it. He'd never taken photographs from the air. So I said, okay, we'll do that. So he got in the back of the helicopter 
And we went up and we were just hovering right above the treetop, looking down at all these dead bodies scattered all over on the ground and in various situations, clothed, unclothed, skeletonized, not yet, in water, not in water, in a car, whatever. And it looked like some surreal scene out of a crazy movie. And we're doing this and we're done and we're flying off. And I'm with some other pilot who's much better than I am, by the way. And we're flying back to the airport. And he says, oh, he said, we got a sheriff's helicopter on our tail. I said, uh, what? probably wonders what we were doing, buzzing around the body farm. But you know, we got Dr. Bass with us. We're fine. So we land and we come to find out that because that body farm been there for decades, I blew the whole fence down. Oh, it's like popsicle sticks. The whole fence around the body farm. As the sheriff said, you blowed the fence down. And I said, well, then you know what we do. You rebuild it and I will pay for all of it. It was rotted, by the way. Well, so because I was paying for it, the body farm went from one acre to two acres. Of course it did. Yeah. Well, I, I probably in another decade, I'll go back and knock it down again. And it'll be three acres after that. That's a lot of fence posts. That's expensive. That's a great story. For somebody who is writing and they haven't published yet and they're just scared, they're just going, I don't know if I can ever get this done. Like easy for Linda to do. She's, you know, her kid's grown and she's out of the house. Little do they know how many hours I stayed up all night, every night forever trying to get my stuff done. But that's a story for another time. But when they're just listening to us right now, it sounds easy, right? It's not easy for anybody. So what's your advice to that person who's just in it right now going, I don't know if I can ever get this done? You know what? My advice is to write like no one's ever going to read it. And to just write like you're writing secret stuff, <laughs> odds it. Because when you do that, you're audacious and you're not afraid and you're bold and you're not pulling back either. So I always try to, I have to do that for myself. You know, I know that I know it's going to come out. I know it's contracted. I know these things are going to happen, but I still try to trick myself by saying, you know, I visualize myself with a flashlight and a notebook in my closet writing secret stuff. You know, kind of like you would as a kid. And my best advice is to write like no one will ever read it. And my second piece of advice is to get the clay on the wheel because you can't go in and tweak it or fix it or do it anything until you've got something to work with. So those are my first number one and number two. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that, especially you got to get the clay on the wheel and also to write because you feel you have a story to tell. There's a story that you want to tell as opposed to thinking about what's going to sell. Mm-hmm. You know, what's this, like when I wrote Postmortem, I was overwhelmed by those serial killings happening in that city and how personally terrified I was because I was living alone. That's when I got my first gun. And, and I imagined what would Scarpetta do? Because I had done three books nobody wanted that she was a character in. And I thought, okay, if this were about her and she was going through this, what would that be like? Because for me, it's always, what does it feel like to be these people? That's the whole point of it. So what does it feel like to be these people? So tell a story that you have feelings about and do what you've got to do to learn enough to do that. And one of the things that I find helpful is to read something else that I think is masterful, like Silence of the Lambs, to me, one of the best crime novels ever done, and study what these people do to learn the engineering of it. Because I don't care 
how brilliant a writer you are or how great your story is. If the architecture stinks, the house is going to fall down. Um, you've got to have to so learn what other people are doing. And I'm still trying to learn those things. But it's a deliberate effort. And it's funny because when Tosca's talking about pretend you're in your closet in your secret notebook, it's also in a weird way. Tell the truth. Yeah, tell your truth. Even if you think people might not like it. I mean, I had a lot of people very offended by postmortem and it was banned by the local big bookstore. Some reviewer threw it across the room because the killer quote wasn't somebody he knew. And I said, serial killers usually aren't people you know, but okay. <laughs> so, but I told the truth as I saw it back then. And I envy my own self for being able to see a truth like that and write a very powerful book as a result. Because once you get in the profession of it, it isn't always that way. Mm-hmm. It isn't always that way. And you wish it were, but then again, it'd be a lot of trauma you're going through all the time. Yeah, no kidding. Patricia, you posted on social media a picture of your young self, your young, smiley, just adorable self holding a FedEx bag with the contents of your first book. Talk to me about holding your first book in your hands. Well, that was probably maybe January 1983, I'm going to guess. Back in the day, When I got my first copy of a book, whether it was the Ruth Graham biography in 1983, it was probably came out the end of 82, whether it was seeing that or seeing postmortem when that came out in 1990, I had never even seen the book jacket before (gasps) I would get out. In fact, with postmortem, I hadn't seen it at all. I didn't see the painting that they'd done with these two hands with rope tied around them. And when I opened that one, and it was again in Richmond in my little tiny hovel of an apartment, and I went, Because, God, that's really graphic and violent. I was, that picture you're talking about, though, when I was in my 20s and the Ruth book was first sent to me, that little room you're staring at was the apartment that my then husband and I lived in while he was in seminary, a Union Theological Seminary in Richmond. And it was just a two-room, teeny tiny little cinder block place. Yeah, you know, where the front door and the back door were right next to each other. Isn't that priceless? You go up front or the back, and you end up in the front of the back. I can still remember that had come in the mail, and Charlie brought it home from the, the seminary mailbox or whatever. And then he said, don't open it till I take a picture. He got the little Canon sure shot camera out. And he took that picture, and then I have one where it's actually coming out of the envelope. Those are probably the only two pictures I have of that. But I remember being filled with wonder and awe and thinking that maybe my life might amount to something until the first book review that came out was the Washington Post and it absolutely trashed me. Oh, no. And then my agent dropped me. And I said, well, I think, look, I want to write murder mysteries now, which (laughs) I can do them. Maybe I'll do religious murder mystery. See, I could have might be made the Christian bestseller list if I'd followed that plan back then. <laughs> but nobody was interested. And that was 1983. I didn't get published again for seven years, as long as those plagues oh. we were talking about earlier in the Bible. Oh, well, I like what you're doing. <laughs> so, wow. Seven years. And did you, well, don't give up. Don't give did, up. Did you really write three of them before they sold? I did. I was writing one a year while I was at the morgue. And the first one a year went by and that would go round and around and nobody wanted it. Meanwhile, I'm writing the next one and then it would go round and around. And I did this for the third one and no. And then I wrote postmortem 
And then it went around and around and every major publishing house in New York said no. And so I had been writing Amtrak into DC and other places looking for journalism jobs because I said, you know, honey, four strikes, you're freaking out. Plus you wrote a book in college, it's five strikes that you're out. You know, go back to journalism. And the Washington Post told me, we don't have a morgue beat. Um, never forget, because they figured that was all I was qualified for at that point. As I came home that night to my little apartment, I walked in and this is like the good old days with the answering machine, beep, beep, yeah. and the little lights flashing. Oh, goody, maybe somebody remembers I'm alive. <laughs> and I, my, I'm, 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 I'm divorced, you know, I'm living on the horrible furniture. I don't have anything. I go play the message and it's my agent saying that Scribner's might take the book, might. And they needed one more person to read it. So they had this one more person to read it and they decided to take the book. So I had a $6,000 advance, a 6,000 first printing, no money for marketing, no publicity plan. And uh, postmortem came out and it didn't start well at all. It got bad reviews by uh, at least some people and banned for being too graphic and whatever. But then it started getting some good book reviews and it started winning awards. Literally, I'm in the morgue getting phone calls about that I'm going to be presented to Princess Margaret. And I think, as someone's holding a bullet wound that's been ex- inside, <laughs> taken out of the body, holding it in forceps. Literally, I walk in and they're saying, well, what do you what do you do if you're being presented to royalties that are dropping this thing in a jar formally? <laughs> I said, I don't know, but I'll stop at a store on the way home and see if somebody can help me out. I mean, it was it's like the silliest thing ever when I think back on those days. My God. So... What I don't understand is, so you sell the fourth one. What happened to one, two, three? They're in boxes in my, or <gasps> they belong. So they never, oh, so they were the three practice books. They're practice books. I have four practice books and I'm a big believer in leaving some things as practice books. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they deserve not to have gotten published. I'm grateful they didn't because yeah. Yeah. I might've kept doing what I was doing whereas I was trying to take realistic forensic medical stuff and put it through the fusion algorithm of an Agatha Christie mystery, which doesn't work, you know, buried treasure and all that kind of stuff and cheating on the will. And then you got a 20 pages showing an autopsy. It was like, uh, -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. So, you know, I'm a slow learner, but I hang in there. God love you. Tosca, what was your first book cover? Oh, my first book cover was uh, for, for Demon. It was called Demon. And by the way, I also have skeletons in the basement too. <laughs> skeleton wikes. Yeah. That all the one down there. But I had seen what it was going to look like. And I, I was on my way to eat dinner with my soon-to-be ex-husband. And we were trying to stay on good terms. And we were on our way to dinner. And I had just picked up my mail. And I was in my car outside the restaurant. I opened the package. And I took it out. And I just remember thinking like, huh. Because I'd see, I mean, it was kind of weird and because you've seen what the art and you've gone through it so many times and it was really odd. And there was this knock on my window and I looked up and it was mine soon to be X. And I said, hey, look. And he said, someday would you sign one for me? And I said, you can have this one right now. And I signed it for him and gave it to him because I had a sense that, you know, there would be other copies. Wow. You know, those things, as wonderful as, as everything is going forward, I'm so grateful for those moments that we had that you can never have again because you can never, there will never be a first again or you're not that same person. And I have so much empathy for 
people trying to write because I know that desperate feeling when you don't know if what you're doing is good. I mean, I don't know what you both did, but my shameless things would be to, I would send like a couple chapters to P.D. James, okay? And she was nice enough to write me back. She She didn't read them, but she was nice enough to write me back. But I mean, God bless her for doing that. And I tell you what, if you want to make it out there, you've got to be a little bit cheeky. Oh, yeah. That too. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I wrote to Princess Diana and asked her for an interview for Lives Charmed. And guess what? I still have the letter from your, Her Highness with the royal symbols on it saying, thank you, but no, thank you. But that's a pretty sick, cool letter. Yeah. <laughs> I say, go boldly. And I, when I was coming along, if I wasn't bold, I wasn't going to get anything. So you get a certain desperate energy about yourself that, if you're the reporter and there's a sniper on the roof, you're going to climb up that ladder and look, I did stuff like that. Because if I don't get that story, someone else is, and now I'm screwed. I mean, I stayed up all night chasing down three death row inmates that had hacksawed their way out of a prison in Georgia and ended up in North Carolina after killing one of their compatriots and dumping his body in the Catawba River. And I'm running around because I got a tip from the police because I'm going to find these guys. And I'm in the staff car and I'm saying, and I was like, <laughs> screech on the brakes. And it's like, F that. Patsy, what are you thinking, you fucking idiot? What are you going to do when you catch them? I mean, they tortured one one of their people to death. And so, fortunately, I didn't find them before the police did. But, but you know, you've got to be like that. Don't let somebody tell you no. Just don't do things that are wrong. But when someone tells you, you're not going to get that interview. Like there was this guy, a police officer, who had run a yellow light, allegedly, and hit a car full of people and killed the whole family. And nobody would... He would not do any interviews. And I was told as the brand new police reporter, you will never get that interview. And every day I would go into the little phone room at the police department and I would call the lawyer and I'd plead my case again. And I finally got the interview. Now, the lawyer was sitting there, but I got a great story because, you know, rejection is not necessarily a sign of failure or a measure of your work. And no isn't always no. It just means you find a different way again, unless you're doing something that's wrong. And then I don't ever recommend anything. I'm going to, all bets are off. And listen, before I forget, I got to tell you an interesting thing because this kind of it keys right into this whole supernatural or whatever, or what I call the other dimension. So several weeks ago, Stacy and I had dinner with Dan Brown. And I love him. I've met uh, several years ago and he's, up here in New Hampshire and we're in Boston. So we had dinner sitting outside when we felt it was safe enough and we were talking. And I was saying, you know, imagine if you think back in the days of Charles Dickens, I said, why doesn't somebody do some kind of podcast or show where you get people like that talking to other people like that? Because let me ask you something. If you could hear Charles Dickens being interviewed by CNN or you could hear Charles Dickens talking to Bram Stoker with somebody else. I mean, what would you do? And Dan said, oh my God, I know what I'd want to hear. I'd want to hear what those two guys had to say. And then lo and behold, that's what you're doing, Linda. What you've done, you've created, you're creating the salon that we don't have anymore. We're really interesting people like the movable feast kind of people, Ezra Pound and Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. They're all comparing notes. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And I think that's a, you're going to make me cry. Thing to do. 
You're going to make me cry. You should have Dan on with you sometime. He'd be fun to talk. I would love, okay, bring him on. We'll do it. Oh, we'll do it. I'm such a fan of, yeah. So I had just finished my first book, Live's Charm, which was this book of interviews about how these people lived magic. And I was on tour and I came home to my parents' house and they had a book that had been, I have it somewhere. I think it was written by Brahms. Brahms wrote this book or he was interviewed. Oh, that's right. He was interviewed extensively by this reporter. So this was like 1890 or something. And he interviewed some of the biggest composers of the late 1800s and wrote a book. And it was just like the book I had just written. And I said, dad, what is this? And he was like, oh, I've had that for years. In fact, he had two copies. And my dad was a music historian for the Bohemian Club in San Francisco. Not as his job. That was like his hobby. You two were so interesting. I don't even know why I'm, I'm here. You guys are so amazing. Oh my God, stop. So my dad was obsessed with music and knew everything about every symphony ever written. And so I find this book and I'm like, Dad, I just wrote this book, but a hundred years later. And he looked at me and he said, he said, maybe you are him. Maybe this was your sequel. And I never forgot it. And I have his, I have Brahms's portrait in oil that dad gave me. Anyway, long rambling story. But there is something mystical about what you just said about the salon. I have often felt that I didn't start this time around, that I kind of came in with this. As a little kid, I, I watched every interview show and I was obsessed with all the interviewers. And yet when I grew up, I got offered my own TV show by multiple networks and I had no interest in being in front of the camera. So I've always been confused about like, who am I? What am I doing? <laughs> because I just want to do it like this. Anyway, thank you. I appreciate it. That just all goes back to the whole business that we talked about earlier about what is time and what is beginning and end and what does any of this mean? And, you know, and what do we pick? Because if you're going to do what you're meant to do on this earth, I don't think you pick it. I think it picks you. And yes, you have free will, but if you do what you want to do and it's not what you should do, you won't be happy. That's your punishment. Go ahead, but <gasps> do it. And so we don't have free will because we're, we're programmed to be most contented when we're doing what we're put here to do. And that's just the truth. There's this wonderful piece of music which starts off with a, with a little frog croaking and all these people join in. And it's, you can find it on the internet. It's called Shy Little Frog. The frog just keeps doing the same thing. And all this wonderful stuff starts playing in, making this little tune. And I go, you know, if you're meant to be the frog, be the best frog you can be, even if you want to be the drums. But just be the frog. And do it with all your might. Be the best damn frog there ever was. And I think I'm a frog, and I'm just going to try to keep being a good frog. But, <laughs> that, but you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe, this is a crazy story, but you talk about being put here to do something. When she was in her senile phase of life, when she was older and pretty demented from what I understand, every single day, she would go to her office and she would write to work on Uncle Tom's Cabin. And she was rewriting the book verbatim, page for page, not knowing that she'd already written it before. Oh. And thank God nobody stopped her. They just let her do it. And she oh. went back. So she never, I mean, imagine that. Oh my God. Now that tells you, if somebody wasn't put here to do that, then what was? Wow. That was was mailed on her chip. Somebody wanted her to tell that story down here. And thank goodness she did. On her chip. You know what? The the perfect 
That's the perfect Wait, illustration. That's the perfect illustration for what I read that you wrote, Tosca, at the very end of, I think, Firstborn. The progeny in that book have superpowers. And the progeny see things and feel things that others don't. You were talking about how you've had some ADHD and stuff in your life. And you said, whatever you have, whether it's ADHD or addiction or depression or anxiety disorder, or chronic illness, whatever it is, I believe it informs your particular genius, the thing that causes you to see the world in a way that others can't. I wrote this book as a reminder that the way you and I see this world is a gift. You are amazing. You are progeny. Use your powers for good people. That's wonderful. (laughs) Amen to that. And that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. It is exactly right to use your powers for good people. Like you're saying, we're all progeny. We all have superpowers. We're all here for magic. Mm -hmm. Did you believe that? Okay, you guys are freaking magic. Thank you for coming to my party. Okay, well, thank you. Much. And I can see why everybody enjoys doing this so much. I said, wait a minute, that's a long time to talk. And, and someone said, well, John Risham thought it wasn't enough time. I said, well, I can see why he would think that now. Because I could do this all night. I could. <laughs> I'm, just, no, I'm so excited I got invited to listen in and come in. And thank you for letting me join in. I really, really appreciate that. Linda, thank you for inviting me. And Patricia, it's such an honor to meet you. Such an honor. It's a honor to meet you. It's an honor to meet both of you. You're phenomenal people. I'm calling you creatures that are the other world. Oh, thank you. And maybe John Grisham is just a premonition because he hasn't been on yet. Someone said John Grisham. I kid you not. They told me John Grisham said it wasn't enough time to happen. That that was like my boss. I'm predicting and didn't know I did. I'm going to have to pitch him. I'm going to have to set out my request. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, real quick, the meaning of autopsy is to see for yourself, which is exactly what we're doing right now. That's where the Greek word it comes from. So see for yourself, which is what we just did. Oh, bless you. For yourself. I have the best job in the world. All right. Love. We will do this again. Okay, please. What a treat. I am so grateful to have had this magical conversation and that you are here to share it with us. I love supporting the authors who come on this show and I know many of you do too. Pre-order Autopsy now and you can have it by the end of November. And remember these authors when you do your holiday gift giving. If you're a writer or you want to encourage a writer in your life, You can find all sorts of helpful resources at bookmama.com or beautifulwriterspodcast.com. A lot of book deals have been born from the aforementioned book proposal magic course. That's the one where Tosca shares one of her full proposals and a tutorial. And we chat about many of her success strategies and share juicy details of her multiple series book deals, book to TV deals, and more. You can get a discount on the course at bookmama.com slash gift. Also, if you learned something and want to share your love of this episode, I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes and leave five stars or a comment on iTunes or wherever you find us. That virtual pat on the back, if you will, that helps us reach more writers. Until next time, remember to use your powers for good people. Right on. <laughs>